This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We are living in different times. I probably don't need to tell you that. I do need to tell a couple that. A couple actually came to a restaurant and were wondering why they couldn't sit inside. Why? Friday. Friday, you can't. Not now. Where have you been? How, how are you upset that you can't sit inside? Some people have absolutely no idea what is going on. But it's our job to keep you as up to date as we can. And as time ticks along and we get closer to the start of the school year, there are still a lot of questions as to what should be happening as students go back to school. And Dr. Michael Silverman has been doing some thinking about that. And Dr. Silverman is the Chief of Infectious Diseases for St. Joseph's Health Center and London Health Sciences Center. He's also an Associate Scientist at Lawson Health Research Institute, and we're really lucky to have him on London Live. Dr. Silverman, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Silverman, where should we begin when starting to think about things like going back to school? So I think it's important we keep things in context because the focus has been regarding the risk of COVID uh, to the children, and that's appropriate, and we have to to think about that. But we also have to think about all the various risks to children with being out of school. And there's been a huge amount of research over the years about what the long-term impacts are of missing school, particularly for younger children, and and they've been extensive and and well-documented and long-term. So we we have to reduce their risk of COVID, but we also have to make sure they get an education and that they get the cognitive stimulation and the social development that all comes with school. Yeah, because let's face it, this past either semester or school year, depending on what age a student was, was stopped very abruptly. I know teachers did what they could, but it wasn't ideal. And in fact, we're seeing feedback now from parents that they didn't feel it was very ideal. Some have called it fair. Others have called it poor. And I don't think we want a repeat of that. So at the same time, this virus is still here, Dr. Silverman. So How does that factor into how we handle the school year if we're going to look at designs on doing it? So we're going to need uh, local responses based on where we're at with the virus on any particular day and week. Um, So we're anticipating the way the virus is right now and hoping that things are still similar in September. Hopefully we don't get a second wave and that in which case things may have to be a little bit different. But it's important to keep in mind that there is very little evidence, in fact, there's a great deal of evidence to the contrary, that, 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 that students, and, and particularly young children, do not seem to be very efficient spreaders of COVID. They do not get sick very much. Um, there, some will get ill, but it's usually a mild illness. Um, and in particular, there's been over 8,000 deaths of, of COVID in, in Canada, But to this date, there's still not been a single death of a child under 18. So generally, children do not get very sick from this. And um, so when we're thinking about their health, we have to think about, you know, are they likely to get very sick, which they're not? And are they likely to suffer from school exclusion, which they are? But then the other argument is made, well, but they could be a vector that transmits the virus to others. And yet the evidence is that they very rarely do that, that usually kids get sick because 
they get infected from an adult, not usually from another child. And when they do get infected, they don't tend to pass it on to the next adult. So it, particularly for the young kids, uh, we're not, I'm not talking so much about the high school children. Um, kids over, over 10 uh, are, uh, are maybe a little different, but as they get older, of course, they behave more like adults and are more likely to spread. But of course, the older the children are, the better they're able to do distant learning. Uh, it's very hard to get a four or five year old to watch uh, a lesson on Skype and or, or, or on Zoom and participate and, and get much out of it meaningfully. There are some who can, but they generally are the minority. Um, whereas older children are able to uh, to, to do lessons uh, at a distance, and so they have to be handled differently. Dr. Michael Silverman joining us, Chief of Infectious Diseases for St. Joseph's Healthcare and London Health Sciences Center and an Associate Scientist at Lawson Health Research Institute as we talk about maybe how the school year can look. So you're looking and saying maybe kids under 10, it almost sounds like could could they go back into a normal setting and, and perhaps be okay? I think we, we got to make it as normal as we can. Now, having smaller class sizes makes sense, but you know, if a lot of the older kids are not necessarily, are, so if some of the older kids are doing distant learning, then that may make more classes available for some of the younger kids who can't do distant learning, and uh, reducing, you know, reducing class sizes to some extent. Uh, various numbers have been thrown out. Uh, Fifteen um, has been something that recently the government suggested, and that sounds reasonable, but. If, if, if we have more places available and we, uh, we, we put other places that we may be doing less other things, for instance, in the fall, you know, indoor gym may be a place that, pay, that, 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 kids, that kids could be doing uh, some, some, some teaching and outdoor learning, especially when the weather is good. And, and as much as we could be doing construction to make places where kids could be educated in smaller groups, um, that we should be acting on that now rather than waiting until September and saying, oh, it's unfortunate there's no place for them. Um, and, and doing as much of that as we can now. And, and there's going to be some children, some parents who decide, I'm, I don't feel good about this. I'm not bring, sending my kid to school. And I want them to learn uh, from a distant perspective. And, and that's okay. We, no one would want um, uh, people to be forced to send their children to school against uh, against their will if they want to do distant learning, so they'll be. It, it may be easier to get those restricted class sizes than people think, um, and there will be teachers who will want to be doing distant learning because of their own vulnerabilities. Uh, they, they might have coexistent conditions. Um, and so they they could be um, uh, working with those kids who do do distant learning. Um, but they'll be for those who who do want in-person learning. I think we have to do everything we can to make this as normal as we as, as we can, and to to make it available five days a week for all the kids who want it. And based on the science, that matches up okay. I think based on the science. We have a lot of evidence that this should be fine. Now, when anyone says it's absolutely not going to lead to an increase in COVID, no one can say that. But but there could be more more cases of COVID, particularly amongst the kids. But again, the emphasis is that when kids get COVID, it's usually a very mild illness and they get over it. So this, the schools, particularly in, in Quebec, were opened, and um, especially outside of the Montreal area, 
and the number of cases continued to fall. Now, some people then said, oh, but look, some kids got COVID, and they did. And they got over it and they were well. I'm not saying COVID is not a serious illness. It's a very serious illness. But that's particularly in adults. In kids, the illness seems to be remarkably benign in the vast majority of cases. So COVID is not the first infectious disease that's affected, that's potentially affected schools. We deal with flu every year. And again, I'm not saying that flu is just as serious as COVID. Flu, COVID kills many more people than, 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 than flu. But COVID particularly kills the elderly and adults with coexisting conditions, not kids. And yet, but flu does kill kids. Flu, some children will die of the flu every year. And yet we don't um, uh, proactively close schools every fall because a flu epidemic is coming. Um, even though that is more serious for children than COVID is. So I think we have to keep it in perspective as well as keep in perspective all the negative things that can happen to children if we keep them out of school. And it's quite different. The negative things that happen to children when we keep them out of school, people talk about, well, you know, we're, we're, we're closing businesses and we're doing this. And, and fortunately, businesses are reopening. But the government can bail out a business financially for, for being closed. The government cannot bail out children for losing on, on, on opportunities for cognitive development. No amount of money is going to fix that if this is something that leads to long-term implications. And the data is that it does lead to long-term implications that are lifelong. And we have to keep that in mind as well as the risk of COVID. Dr. Silverman, thank you so much for all the information and for your expertise this afternoon. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Michael Silverman, Chief of Infectious Diseases for St. Joe's and for London Health Sciences Center and an Associate Scientist at Lawson Health Research Institute. So that is coming from someone who knows infectious diseases, saying, hey, if we are weighing how much damage can be done to young children based on the poor quality of education that they would be getting trying to learn from a distance, because you can't teach young kids from a distance effectively. You can't. I really want to recognize all of the educators who gave it the good old college try. But that's tough. That is tough. And we can't be going through a year or six months or 18 months or whatever it takes of that kind of stuff. You are going to have kids fall behind. You are going to have kids miss out on such important lessons that by the time you try and move the curriculum on, they're lost. We are going to look at some pretty interesting things. What if somebody said to you, hey, uh, if we see you outside, you're going to be subjected to a $750,000 fine. That's with the three zeros on the end and potential jail time. You probably would stay inside. I don't know. I would find a locked closet in the basement, go into it and lock it. And I would not I would not even want to risk sleepwalking if there was a threat of a seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar fine. Now, let's kind of dig into this a little bit more and maybe even dig into a couple of other things, because the sports world's been filled with a lot of different stuff. The comments from supposed Leaf fans and other people over Leaf players wearing Black Lives Matter t shirts yesterday were 
hideous. I don't. I have no idea what was going on there. I can't go on Twitter anymore. I'm getting really sick of Twitter. But I'm never sick of this man. Dr. Derek Silva joins us. He's an assistant professor at King's University College, specializing in sport, terrorism, radicalization, and punishment. Dr. Silva, how's your day going? It's going well. How are you, Mike? Not too bad. You've been following very closely what's been happening in the sports world with everybody trying to return to play. That's become this this nice little line from everything from roller derby all the way to the National Hockey League. Return to play. And uh, we're still in a pandemic, right? I I want to check. We we haven't mentioned that in about an hour. We're it's still a pandemic? Yeah, it's still a raging pandemic in in fact. Yeah, raging pandemic. But don't worry, we've got Orlando as a nice hot spot for COVID-19. Oh, and for the NBA and MLS soccer. So they can continue on doing that. Are you surprised at what you're seeing from the sports world through all of this? No, to be honest, I'm not surprised at all. We as fans expect players to sort of sacrifice everything. And in this case, including possibly their lives. And this to play a variety of games that actually suit our needs and our desires. And then also because of that, they fuel big money. So the fact that we're rushing to move back to sport is not surprising in the least. And yet, we do have positive tests. We haven't seen anyone, it seems, from the sports world stricken to the point that, that they've been placed on a ventilator, which is which is great, or I don't know how many hospitalizations we've even seen. A lot of that information seems to be fairly tight to the vest and will probably continue to be that way. Do you think that might change anything if an athlete was to become seriously ill? Absolutely. And I think like, to be completely honest, if you just look at data and the numbers of cases happening right now in places like Florida, where we know there's the hub of both MLS and the NBA, it's a matter of time until a player gets it and is either seriously ill due to an increased viral load or causes a massive outbreak where an entire team gets it or half of an entire team. Could you imagine if that happens to LeBron James and Anthony Davis? How does that how does the NBA continue? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you wonder what would have happened. Vaughn Miller is a defensive end slash linebacker sometimes, depending on where they line him up for the Denver Broncos, and he has asthma. And he was diagnosed with COVID-19, and he's told some pretty harrowing stories about not being able to breathe and being worried about oxygen levels at night. But even he didn't have to go to the hospital. Had he been in the hospital earlier, had had it stricken him to a greater degree, fortunately it didn't. But you have to wonder where we would be in terms of getting sports back going if somebody as high profile as Vaughn Miller was seriously ill. Let's take a look at sports from kind of a, of a different angle on the weekend travis shaw tweeted a number of different things about kind of being stuck and being forced to not go outside and he has since apologized for those things but it brought up information dr silva about the quarantine act and the fact that if a blue jays player was seen outside by law they could be fined seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars and and get jail time is that was that all reported properly <laughs> so obviously, I think TSN Scott Mitchell, who reported the story, was evoking a little bit of hyperbole and sensationalism. Uh, we're all listen. We're all technically um, subject to the Quarantine Act, and we all could technically face jail time um, or um, a fine of up to seven hundred fifty k if we were to break that law. 
So in the, in the cases um, that we're talking about here, many of these athletes are not Canadians and they return to the United or to Canada from the United States and therefore are subject to a 14 day quarantine under the, the quarantine act. So just like anyone else, we would, we're all subject to that law and we all could face that penalty. The problem that I see here is that this came directly from team management, as, as Scott Mitchell reported. Like, we know players aren't happy with it, like Travis Shaw. But, like, what is alarming to me is that this came from, say, your bosses. Like, this came from the management of the team, not from a government official, not from anyone else. This actually came from their bosses, which, to me, you raised it early, earlier on. If you... Just for a moment, imagine you work for um, London Transit or you're in a long-term care facility and your boss tells you that you're not allowed to go see your family. You're not allowed to go shopping. You're not allowed to walk around your city. How might you react? Yeah, uh, I, I certainly would lock myself in that basement closet if I was under threat of a $750,000 fine. In all of this, we have seen the Blue Jays brought back to Canada and, and special exemptions made. Do you read anything into that, Dr. Silva? I, I read that money is kind of over everything. Um, we put money and we put um, our supposed need for professional sport ahead of our own health. And that, to me, speaks volumes about the social world and about us as a uh, as a culture and what we're willing to sacrifice who we are willing to sacrifice for our own sort of boredom or our own desires and our own entertainment and that's i think the root of the problem here we are talking with Dr. Derek Silva from King's University College. Dr. Silva is an assistant professor specializing in sport, terrorism, radicalization, punishment. Anything else jumping out to you from what is going on in, in all of this return to play, Dr. Silva? I think, uh, well, a couple of things. One, I, I think this is generally about how society views athletic laborers, people who their job is to like be on the field and entertain us that they have to sacrifice so that we can enjoy, you know, a cold one while watching the blue Jays play the Red Sox. And in a time where compassion and understanding are more valued than ever, we're totally ignoring that for athletes. We're completely ignoring that entire thing so that they can entertain us because sort of quarantine is boring. Um, And this, this idea that we need sports during a, a, a raging pandemic, it is still absolutely accelerating, is a massive problem. Yeah, it really is. You know, I'm as big a sports fan as anybody else, but it is strange to see even even in MLS soccer, when you had Toronto FC have their game postponed minutes before it was due to kick off against DC United on Sunday because of a COVID test. When you've got two MLS teams that aren't playing, a National Women's Soccer League team that could not play, featuring Londoner Shalina Zadorsky, could not play because of COVID-19. And, and you're just kind of tiptoeing around, hoping that this is okay, because like you say, people are bored and, and they would like to be entertained. You, do we have political heads and and i know money's the, the probably the largest motivating factor but do we have political heads saying you know if we have sports on people are more likely to sit at home and stay on their couch i i wonder whether that's even there 
I, I, I question whether or not we need sports in general in the middle of this pandemic. Do we want them? Yes. Would we like to have them around? Absolutely. But what we actually need to do right now is deal with the crisis that is currently in our long-term care facilities. What we need to do now is deal with the crisis that is child care and schooling when parents get back to work. What we need to do now is for people to take physical distancing seriously, take mask wearing seriously, and take testing seriously. We do not need sports. Changing that narrative is important, I think. Dr. Silva, thank you so much for your input today. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Derek Silva, assistant professor at King's University College in sport, terrorism, radicalization, punishment, and an expert, obviously, in a lot of things, but some good thoughts. I mean, right now, let's let's get our feet underneath us. There will be a time for sports. We have had replays of sports that people have been watching, but you think about the way that things are being set out. And imagine being a player, and this gets back to being, oh, well, they're millionaires, and they're, they also have families. It doesn't matter what the size of your paycheck is. When you come home, and if you have a spouse or if you have a child that has a compromised immune system or underlying conditions of any kind if you are max domi and you are diabetic it doesn't matter how big your paycheck is you know it, it, it doesn't that doesn't change what happens when you walk through the door and so often i think we lose sight of that the human factor of this and you've got a lot of people who are scared who are afraid. Maybe now is not the time to do this, but they're being told this is it. And you've got some people who are opting out, but others have chosen, no, I'm I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to play. They all want to play. You don't want to let your team down. You don't want to let your league down. You also don't want to compromise your family. It, it's a tug of war internally that's a lot bigger than any athletes are really letting on. And... Right now, when you see rosters expanded, and you know why they're being expanded, they're being expanded because there's a chance people could fall ill. And then they would just whoop, put that person out, put a new person in. That's that's honestly what we're dealing with. That's why the rosters are larger. How'd you like that? You You walk into work when it's not a pandemic, and there's five people sitting in a room. And you ask, who are those people? Oh, they're there just in case you're not doing a very good job or you get sick. They'll just come in and replace you. Oh, that that's interesting. Uh, who, who made this rule? That's kind of the way it would work. It's kind of the way it is working in sports right now. There are conversations that we need to keep going, and that's what we are going to do. And we turn to one of those conversations right now, and it deals with a letter that was sent to Western University's senior leadership team in response to past and current racist and discriminatory practices. It was sent by Black at Western alumni, and it said that there were 13 action items to support the university as it went through recommendations from their anti-racism working group. In other words, here is some helping hands, and now as you're making decisions going forward, Hopefully this gives you some personal accounts, some insight. I'd love that. You know, no matter what it is, if somebody can give you personal insights, I am all about someone saying, hey, I've been there before, 
or I was there and here's what I saw. We need that in our lives, right? Joining us right now to discuss this is Kazito Saramaga from Black at Western, a Black at Western alumnus. Kazito, thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Well, thank you for having me on, Mike. How are you doing? You know what? I'm I'm doing all right. I'm I'm interested to hear kind of some of your experiences and and maybe the the coming together of Black at Western alumni and what kind of brought about this letter that was sent to the senior leadership team at Western. Why don't we start with kind of where that came from? Well, essentially, it's been 30 years, and we're all going about our businesses. And in fact, many of us have children who are starting or even finishing university. It's the, the response to the anti-racist working group um, the, um, group's um, report that we then said to ourselves, we need to get involved in this. When the university president wrote his letter, which was a a half apology, and when the psychology department wrote their briefing saying that actually we now agree that Russian's work was racist, was bad science, and was actually not, not, should not have been allowed on campus, that's when we realized that they actually are only accepting what we were saying 30 years ago today, as well as they're now going to start making the mistakes of thinking that there's a very easy solution to this problem. So we said, let's write a letter and speak to them and tell them our experience and tell them how we think it should be handled. And considering that amongst our group, there are people who have PhDs in education, there are people who have their very extreme, I mean, high-level lawyers in Toronto and around the world. And we're saying we know what's going on and we lived it. So we want to be a part of it and we want to make um, very, very strong recommendations and action plans for the way forward. And you mentioned Dr. Phil Rushton, and again, Mm -hmm. there was a focus on on Dr. Rushton and some of the practices. You mentioned you felt that you received a a half apology. What would you have liked to have seen as a group in that apology that wasn't there? From the essentially, there is the apology, as all apologies tend to do. Some many apologies tend to do is that it's covering up the, the requirement for action. We were looking for action, and um, the apology, if if it was to be a start towards action, it didn't cover the issue of that. We are now going to actively implement ideas, concrete ideas, concrete and concise ideas that will change. The, the makeup and the, the, the environment for black students on, at, on Western campus. Remember, we didn't just come in and write the letter. We actually spoke to current students on campus right now, the Black Students Alliance, who actually went through a racist incident last year where um, some professors using the N-word in class and insisting on doing it, even though the students had complained. And um, they were saying, when they started telling us their stories, we were mapping them directly onto our experiences all those years ago. And we realized that actually um, the campus needs some structural changes. So um, what we wanted to see was real action plans, um, not just um, apologies and generic or general statements saying we will try to do this or we will work towards achieving this. We were saying this, give us direct communications on how you're going to improve the psychology department's ability to prevent racist um, racist um, ideology from being taught as science in class. How are you going to do that? Um, Russian, for example, was teaching 
eugenicist science, which is discredited at the time, and he was receiving money from the Pioneer Fund, which is a eugenicist organization that is acknowledged worldwide as a racist organization. How the hell did Western get into the position of receiving money for that organization and hosting their ideas, ideas in their classrooms? We want mandates that show clearly that that will never happen again. We're talking with Kazito Saramaga, who is discussing the Black at Western alumni letter that was sent to Western University and its senior leadership team. And it is looking at the response to Western's past and current racist and discriminatory practices that Cazito has just outlined. And the idea that we had something happen this past year. I mean, you would think, no, yeah. no, no, that that, that wouldn't, wouldn't happen anymore. It is happening now. And, and you right. have your own experiences that you look at. And, and you look at, at Dr. Rushton and, and those connections that were brought mm-hmm. up in many news stories and were made very public. In terms of, of what needs to take place, we always hear academic freedoms are brought up. Mm-hmm. Can we get around things like that? Because, you know, I mean, is there a way to say, look, you know, let's forget about things like that. Let's look at what's right. Let's let's look at what needs to be done. Um, good question, because um, we had this discussion even way back then as well. When academic freedom is actually two words, academic and freedom. Most people are, are confused by the word freedom and ignore the word academic. Rushton's work was not academic. It has been proven time and time again that it was bad science and that even his methodologies of, of um, conducting his interviews were completely wrong and unethical. That's why he was actually removed from the class. So he had the freedom to do the study, but he had to do it in an unethical way, and he didn't. So we need to understand that academic freedom is a red herring at this point. It's not about um, um, stopping people from doing research. What we are talking about right now is stopping racism from being taught with the cover of science. Right, and um, where we, we need to educate ourselves more on on how the actual what you would call race science comes about, and we need to understand that this is part of some of the courses we'd like people to to learn on campus is to learn how the origins of the white supremacist ideology was brought forth as a method of of trying to obviously subjugate people and gain gain um, unfairly against them. But the point was is that it's not believed. It's not even, um, it's not something that is rooted in, 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 as some would suggest, genetically rooted in white people. It's just an ideology by a group of even a small subset of, of that group that want to gain advantages over others. It's not something that is universal. And it is so easily disproven that we should start teaching that more often. And that's taught in the history classes, it's taught in the psychology classes, it's taught even in the math classes. The original mathematicians were actually from North America, algebra is an Arabic word. So we need to understand these things more. And that's what we're saying is that, I mean, if I'd I'd give all, all the money in the world to teach your children, right, rather than to say, rather than giving me a seat on the board of Western. Because to me, that is where, 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 where the real struggle is, is that we need to get rid of the the lack of knowledge and the ignorance that is being transmitted down from generation to generation. Um, and that's where we are going. But generally speaking, yes, we have to start from getting controls of the administrative structures of a campus and make sure that they actually are implementing actionable and concise and smart solutions that will help black students currently and any of the future students that might join the campus.
Yeah, we probably take too much for granted, don't we? We take too much yeah, for yeah, granted that you think, okay, that that would have to be happening. That would, oh, sure, that that would have to be happening. <laughs> yeah, I know, and it's, and I'm glad. I mean, I'm happy that you're taking this tone, and I'm and I have to remind you that back then when we were making these arguments. We were being attacked on campus. We were being attacked on campus, being told, what if Russian is true? So if you can imagine, we're young um, undergraduates in our early 20s trying to get through school and through relationships that we're having, and then all of a sudden we're defending our humanity in class and outside of class. So um, um, those things you take for granted, uh, where you go to school and you're going to have whatever trials and tribulations we all have at that age, we had the added burden of fighting an administration that was actually completely um, incompetent in dealing with the matter, institutionally racist in my opinion, and um, then having that person who's transmitting those ideas walking freely on campus. I'll give you an example. The woman on our campus, the black woman on our campus, at the time expressed an appealing that they were becoming very uncomfortable because the key um, point in Rushton's report was that black women are more perverse promiscuous than any other woman in the world. That's what his, those were his scientific findings. So black women were now under threat on campus because they were being approached by white men who are believing that crap and actually might assume they're more promiscuous and, and, and take advantage of them. So they were now under extra, under extra pressure to themselves from unwanted sexual advances. So that's the kind of pressure that this kind of attitude brings to black students on any kind of campus of this sort. So we need to start implementing real actionable concepts that can protect us from bad science and also from um, incompetent administration. Boy, and you think you, you described it. You're talking about people who are in their incredibly early 20s. We're talking 20, yeah. 21, yeah. and then yeah. having to deal with that kind of a thing going on because yeah. of what is being stated in classroom as science. Yeah, and we fought PhDs. We we fought people with PhDs. We fought professors and so on as twenty-one year olds, and we were supported by people like David Suzuki. There were many other great professors and campuses around the world that supported us. But at the on the point on the front line in the trenches it was just us kids, and we did fight and we did win many good battles on the thing on the ground, and we did leave a good impression. However, now, 30 years later, you asked at the beginning of this interview, how did this come about? We were talking to each other, and we realized that almost all of us had blanked out the whole episode, and, and many, most of us had determined never to allow our children to go to Western. So basically, there was some unfinished business. We needed some closure. So part of the letter is closure. We want to protect the current students by sharing our experience with them. Kazito Saramaga joining us. As a final question, have you heard a response to the letter? Yeah, um, uh, um, we had a team that met the president, and he, he said he's going on holiday for two weeks, so he needs to come back and deal with it, but he was very um, cordial, and he was also very receptive. Um, so we have to say that everything is still in, in balance. We will be able to know more about how they're going to approach this in about a month's time. Well, it would be nice to say for... Things like this, we could wave a magic wand and yeah. it would all be changed, it would all be fixed, yeah. it would all be better. That can't happen, but the little no. things that are being done, even even something like sending a letter, even having conversations all of these years later, that's right. that's the foundation, let's hope. Let's, let's hope that that starts to be the building block that eventually does bring about change that, that years from now feels like we did wave a magic wand. <laughs> yes, let's hope so. And thank you very much for putting your oar in for 
for what it's worth. Kazito, thank you for your time. Thank you. Goodbye. That's Kazito Saramaga. See, that's that's the kind of thing that we've got to realize. We take stuff for granted. And if you talk with someone who has been through experiences like Kazito and his classmates, we maybe miss out on things because we take for granted that ah, da, 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 that would not that wouldn't happen. Well, it does, and it did, and it does again. That's why even something as raising that awareness, having that conversation with Western, with the current, whether it's senior leadership or with the president, that's what has to be done. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.